Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Red states versus blue states. When it comes to projecting our environment, are we really two different Americas? Climate One Conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. When the fracking industry came to her Pennsylvania community, Stacy Haney felt good about signing over the rights to use her family farm. To Stacy, it felt patriotic. Her father was a Vietnam combat vet, and she really wanted to keep American troops out of harm's way, out of foreign entanglements over oil. And so she thought that she was really doing her duty by signing this lease. What happened to Stacy's family as a result turned her world upside down. New Yorker writer Eliza Griswold tells their story in her new book, Amity and Prosperity, One Family and the Fracturing of America. Spending time in this Appalachian community, says Griswold, opened her eyes to a side of America that many don't know and don't bother to understand. And we know what our stereotypes are, and we feed them. You know, reporters go out for a day to Trump country. Sociologist Arlie Hochschild also wanted to get past the stereotypes. That led her to leave her Berkeley bubble behind to spend five years reporting on the conservative community of Bayou Corn, Louisiana. When I went there, I told them, hey, I'm from Berkeley, California. Interested in the Tea Party, he said, Berkeley, so y'all communist, right? <laughs> Hochschild's book, Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right, tells the story of a community that's been betrayed by the promise of prosperity and by a government that has let them down. It's what she calls the great paradox. At the heart of it is this question of why it would be that the states that are the most polluted are also the states with the most voters who don't believe in regulating polluters. On today's program, Greg Dalton talks with Arlie Hochschild and Eliza Griswold about the people whose lives have been impacted by America's craving for energy, the choices they've made, and their fight to protect their families and their environment. So Eliza Griswold, tell us about Stacy Haney. Her dad was a Vietnam vet. She thinks that U.S. energy is better than foreign energy. Tell us about Stacey. 
So Stacy Haney is a nurse and a single mom of two kids, and she and her family have, for about the past hundred years, been from two towns in southwestern Pennsylvania, just where Appalachia begins. And the towns are named Amity and Prosperity. And Stacy, she is truly a remarkable person. She has this small farm. She's had it for for really that the family has had it for about a century. Um, it belonged to her great grandfather. And what happened in 2010 and 2011 is that her son, who was 14 at the time, Harley, began to develop mysterious illnesses. And she, as a nurse, had the capacity to do some testing. And she found that she and her daughter and her son had benzene and toluene in their bodies. And Harley had arsenic poisoning. And once she got this information, she knew that there was gas drilling just next door, unconventional drilling fracking, about a quarter of a mile from her house. But then her daughter looked in her seventh grade uh, computer science class, looked at their their house on Google Earth, and she saw that just a quarter of a mile from them, there was a seven-acre industrial waste pond. And it turned out that pond was not only leaking, it was off-gassing near lethal levels of hydrogen sulfide into the air. Uh, it was literally rotting with a bacterial infection. These were just the very beginning of the elements that Stacy learned about this mystery that was unfolding next door to her and how it might be impacting her family. And there's one dramatic moment where I think she's in a room with her friend Beth and some energy representatives, and they're about to sign a lease. So, you know, when, when fracking came to southwestern Pennsylvania, a lot of the messaging around it and a lot of the reason that Stacy wanted to sign a lease was this idea of energy independence, which is clearly nothing new. But to Stacy, it felt patriotic, and it felt patriotic for a couple of reasons. First of all, she comes from the Rust Belt, and the promise of industries return. Her dad is an out-of-work steelworker, and they grew up in poverty. So the idea that she was doing something for her region so people might go back to work, that was very positive. But what was also positive, you mentioned her father was a Vietnam combat vet, and she really wanted to keep American troops out of harm's way, out of foreign entanglements over oil. And so she thought that she was really doing her duty by signing this lease, and she was also going to end up with a $9,000 payment that would allow her to build her dream barn. And that was really, she thought, going to secure her spot in the middle class. And one of the interesting points I noted was that uh, coal and oil had been extracted in these areas and most of the money left. But with fracking, some of the money stayed because people were able to lease for fracking. It's like, hey, we can get rich. You know, the money can stay here in a way that it didn't for coal and oil. Absolutely. I mean, so this is one of the most important points that we really need to understand. That When outsiders come into this place and they say, how can you possibly be signing leases? You know, many of the people who live in this part of Appalachia have extremely sophisticated understandings of the minerals underneath their property. And you know, for coal in particular, coal has been divorced. They haven't made any money off of coal since the late 1800s. <laughs> and so Stacy in particular, in fact, the kind of coal mining that's going on in this area that, that really undermined, that's the verb, undermined the town of Prosperity near next door is something called longwall mining. And when the longwall industrial mine comes under your house, you by definition lose your water for your farm. So people were afraid and they are still afraid of what's going to happen 
when the long wall comes. And so for Stacey and her neighbors signing these gas leases, they thought might actually be a protection against coal. And that's a story we don't hear very much at a distance on the coast. And we really have to understand the complexity of why people made these decisions, because they're not simply voting against their own interests. Arlie Hochschild, one, one of the characters in your book is Lee Sherman. It sort of epitomizes the, the great paradox. So tell us about Lee Sherman and the great paradox. Well, Lee Sherman uh, worked uh, all his life for petrochemical companies. He was a pipe fitter, and he worked uh, for Pittsburgh Plate and Glass. And uh, one day, he uh, was asked by his boss to take on a certain mission, and it would be at dusk when nobody could see, and there was something called a tar buggy, and it was heated from the bottom, and it had all the toxic waste and sludge that had produced that day. And it was Lee's job to uh, look left, look right, make sure no one was seeing, and... uh, unscrew uh, a valve and uh, release this toxic waste into uh, public waters. And he uh, told me this. He was uh, now in his 80s. And he told me that he was felt guilty about doing this. But one thing happened that on the job, he himself was exposed to ethylene dichloride. And he got sick couldn't move his legs. So he was put on medical leave by the company doctor. And later, he was fired for absenteeism. So here's a man who'd been doing the dirty work for the company, who himself was now out of a job and out of health. And he became an environmentalist later in life, and also an enthusiastic uh, voter for Donald Trump. And uh, I had periodic conversations with him about he, how he puts these two things together. But he regrets what he did, and he's... Uh, I think of Steven. all the characters and, and the stories in your remarkable book, Arlie. It's Lee Sherman who is just indelible. And the complexity of that moral situation that yeah. I just can't get out of my head. Yeah. Another character in Strangers in Their Own Land is Mike Schaff, a lifelong resident of the Louisiana Bayou, about an hour south of Baton Rouge. He's a Tea Party member, a Trump supporter, and an avid fisherman. In 2012, a giant sinkhole swallowed much of his small community because of a well drilled by a salt mining company called Texas Brine. The well punctured a naturally occurring salt dome underneath the ground. Schaff campaigned for years to get compensation for displaced residents. Right. Well, I've been a conservationist since I've been a little boy. Since I've been fishing and hunting and stuff, and I'd, I'd find dead fish, then I knew something was wrong. I joined the Green Army, which is a sort of a coalition of people of Louisiana that got screwed by companies, you know. And we fight each other's fight and support them. And I am pro-industry. I'm just pro-clean industry. You know what I mean? Uh, we need what the industries, petrochemical industries in particular, what they produce. Our goal is to make it be produced in the most environmentally acceptable way as possible. I mean, who wants a dirty uh, water or a dirty atmosphere? You, do, do you know of anybody that wants that? How many Republican friends you got? Do, do they want that? Uh, well, they don't want it, I promise you. 
we had so many pollution problems mainly because of the uh, the the state agencies that are in charge of it are bought out or are under the thumb of the legislatures and the lobbyists and industry. One person asked me why I vote for Trump when uh, he's getting rid of the EPA, and I asked him, oh, what has the EPA done for me? We've asked them to intervene on this mess we have over here, and uh, they haven't lifted a finger. That's Mike Schaff, a Trump supporter outside Baton Rouge. Um, Harley Hochschild, your response to what he said there? Yeah. When I first met Mike and uh, I asked him why was he like the Tea Party and why government, big, bad, federal government or even state government was so bad. And he said, well, I believe in community and, and the government's doing for us, things we ought to do for each other, for community. So get rid of government, recover community. And yet what happened to him with uh, the Bayou Corn sinkhole was that he lost a community, uh, his whole community. It was declared a disaster zone, uh, a sacrifice zone. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't big, bad government that took it away. It was unregulated industry that took it away, and the absence of good government that took it away. I, I went to visit him in Bayou Corn, and he, uh, just shortly after this had happened, and it, it never had earthquakes before, but suddenly there were earthquakes, and he thought he was having a heart attack because things were moving. Um, and it sounded like someone had put a dumpster just loud. And then he began, it was raining, and he noticed there was bubbling in, uh, in his front lawn. It was like Alka-Seltzer. That was methane gas that was there. Everyone else had left, but he didn't want to leave. That's how much he loved his community, kind of uh, Cajun community. Many people had been working in the oil industries uh, had, and were retiring there. Loved this community. And he didn't want to leave it, but he had this gas monitor. He'd check it in the middle of the night. You know, if you lit a, <laughs> a match, the place could go up. But he took that risk. That's how much he loved this place and how much he hated leaving it. I think just to talk about regulation a little bit, like to, to tease that out a little bit, why, why do people feel that the federal government is against them? Like, what is their lived experience of that? When, when you look at farming communities where there are small farms, like if you look at Appalachia in this area of southwestern Pennsylvania, there's a pork farmer who comes to mind, uh, a guy named Jason Clark. He's president of the Washington County Pork Association. He's in his 30s, and he has a brother who's an opioid addict. And and because when I talk to him about, let's talk about the government, why are you so opposed to regulation? And he tells this story, which is, you know, he's got the small number of pigs. Every time he has to give a pig a shot, he's got to pay $100 because according to regulation, the vet has to come out and give that pig the shot. But if he just thinks maybe his shoulder hurts a little bit, he can get in his car, drive 10 miles up the road, go to MedExpress and get a prescription for Oxy. And he turned to me and said, you want to tell me that the government isn't hypocritical. I am less regulated than my pigs are. Yeah. So just mm -hmm. to understand that a little bit, right. that is lived experience for people in, in a great deal of America. Right. I think that's a great uh, comment. And 
I would add that in the case of Louisiana, uh, it's interesting that in a way, companies give to the state the moral dirty work of promising to protect them from pollution, but not protecting them from it. In the case of Louisiana, there was $1.6 billion that was given to a variety of industries as incentive money to come and uh, basically process <laughs> the natural gas they were getting from Pennsylvania. And so with that money, companies could give out money for the Audubon Society and uh, chemistry classes for the third grade and um, LSU uniforms, you know, so they could branding, they could be thought well of. But it's also true that uh, the Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality, they don't even have protection in the name, does not protect people. They, as Mike himself said at one meeting, oh, they give out permits like candy. So in a way, everybody thinks, well, industry is okay, but it, this government, whose salaries you're paying for uh, uh, environmental employees are not protecting you. So it's easy to ex explain why they think state government, what are these people doing? They're not doing their job. And in the case of Stacey Haney, she went through a lot of work to try to understand what's in her water to get her water tested, to understand the test. Sure. I mean, so in Pennsylvania, the Department of Environmental Protection is often called Don't Expect Protection. That's its acronym for local mm. people. And the, the way that it works, and NPR State Impact in Pennsylvania has done excellent work on this issue, there's a revolving door between uh, public service and private industry. And that is really important to understand because it's a form of public poverty that's really driving a lot of the lack of regulation and the lack of upholding state regulation. So what Stacy did is she tried, she tried time and again to hold different parties accountable to, to testing what was in her water. Essentially what happened is the, the state DEP was coming out to test people. If you complain that your water is contaminated by oil and gas, you, you suspect it is. The state DEP would come out and they would test for 24 different metals associated with oil and gas contamination. But when they got those results back, so they were testing for 24, but they would only give you results for eight, right? And this is, that's, it, 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 that is exactly how these kind of, this is how this unfolds, right? That people have inadequate information um, that leads them into great harm. And there's even one scene where she meets with regulators and she gets some information. And then one of the regulators calls her back afterwards and says, don't drink your water. Right. Hangs up. <laughs> That's an EPA. That's so the EPA has yeah. launched two criminal investigations into this site. And I am proud to say that as uh, since the book has come out, the Josh Shapiro, the attorney general, has launched a new investigation. Um, but I was at, you know, I've been walking, going around talking about this book and I was in Washington, D.C. not long ago. And most of my work as a journalist has been in Afghanistan and elsewhere. And there was a guy in the front row who was bald and I was sure he was a like a tough general. I forgot from Afghanistan. <laughs> and he came striding up to me after the reading. I thought, oh God, I don't remember this is. And he said, you know, I am Marty. I'm the first fe federal regulator on Stacy's case. And I did everything I could to make that stick and I couldn't do it. Right. So mm -hmm. you look at the failure and I'll just say this, that, you know, some of the people in the book were standing by this contaminated site when a state 
uh, representative, somebody from the DEP, asked a representative from the private company if there were jobs available at the company. And why shouldn't they? Because they need to feed their families too. So these are the complexities and, and the ways that we have to really understand how people live their lives and how we have to do better at addressing public failure. So eventually, uh, Stacy gets some information you know, she has to leave her land. Yeah, so Stacy has to leave her land. I mean, following this in real time was mind-bending because, you know, when I first met Stacy, I met her at the Morgantown, West Virginia airport the first time she ever spoke publicly about what she feared was happening. And she didn't have much information. And she was terrified that if she spoke out publicly, the company that was supplying her water at that time would punish her by taking the water away. And she does not, she's not a fan of journalism. She's not a fan of outside. She wanted the company to do right. And she believed if she told them her story, that they would do right by her. And time and again, this fails over seven years. So finally, what happens is her kids are so sick, um, they have to move out. They move into a trailer behind her parents' house in, in the nearby town of Amity. So she's living in a trailer with her kids. At night, it's so cold that they tried not to roll over because they stick to the trailer's walls um, because they're warm and the trailer is cold. She's constantly on the move. They really are a different kind of climate refugee. You know, they're really moving as a result of extraction next door to their house. And they lose... In the process, the way that she and her neighbor, Beth Voyles, start to put together what's happening is the death of their animals. They keep mm. losing goats and dogs and horses. And, and it's that kind of sensitivity to toxicity that makes them put the story together. So they lose everything. She loses a house. She loses a way of life. She loses her farm. She loses all of, all of her animals because when the house is abandoned, wild dogs end up attacking the farm. And that was just, I mean, it was really really apocalyptic. And as much as the story is about fracking, it's really much more a story of the failure of the common good mm. and, and what it is that binds us together. Eventually, the company settles, and I don't know what those terms are because they are protected um, under terms of the settlement, which is quite standard. How do they feel about the settlement? They feel pretty disappointed. I will tell you, they feel pretty disappointed. And Harley, you know, in the course of the book, we meet this 14-year-old boy who is, wants to be the first kid in his family to go to college. He wants to be a veterinarian. He loves animals. The process of seeing animals sicken and die makes him think, I'm, I'm not going to be a vet. Then he wants to go into the military like his grandfather. And then he decides that he is not going to fight for a country that has let him down, mm -hmm. that has failed him. And his health isn't good enough either. He runs a lawn company, and finally he does what he's doing today. He goes to work for the pipeline. He's laying natural gas pipe for the industry that sickened him. So it's really it's hard to imagine what this industry has cost this family. If you're just joining us at Climate One, my guests are Eliza. Lisa Griswold, the journalist at The New Yorker and fellow at Harvard Divinity School, and Arlie Hochschild is an author and a professor of sociology at University of California, Berkeley. I'm Greg Dalton. Um, Arlie, I want to talk to you about the empathy wall and the empathy gap. Mm -hmm. Why would anyone in Louisiana talk to a liberal from Berkeley, first of all? <laughs> and uh, yeah, how did empathy play into that? Yeah, well, um, five years ago, I decided that uh, already... Uh, the country was splitting in half, and Congress was at a gridlock, and uh, Trump was not yet in the White House. But I thought, I don't know anybody on the other side, um, not really to talk to in a complex way. 
So, and they probably don't know me. In fact, we're all in bubbles, electronic bubbles, media bubbles, geographic bubbles, as we know. So let me get into a bubble that's as far right as Berkeley, California mm -hmm. <laughs> is on the left, and take my alarm system off. Not forever, but long enough to permit myself a great deal of curiosity and interest in uh, the lives of people that I knew I disagreed with. And people have said, oh, well, you know, you must have a lot of empathy. No more than anybody else. There's no magic to this. We do it with our children, with our loved ones, with our family, with our friends. But we just don't do it for people that we think of as uh, really disagreeing on climate or politics or anything else. So when I went there, this Mike Schaff, when I I told him, hey, I'm from Berkeley, California, interested in the Tea Party. He said, Berkeley, so y'all communist, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then he laughed, you know, mm. and then I thought, we can talk. He was very generous hearted and very open. He knew we didn't agree on almost anything, but I asked, could I see where you were born? Could I see where your school was? You know, what, uh, what church did you go to? Where are your folks buried? And in the course of all of this and going out fishing, he knew the faces of 50 kinds of fish. You know, for me, there was just one category, fish, but for him. <laughs> this one had whiskers and that had eyes. And he... Uh, really generously shared his, his life with me so that I could kind of try and understand how he saw this disaster that happened to him by corn and how he saw Trump and how he saw the EPA. How about you, Eliza? Did writing this book, you know, put another narrative in your head that you can at least underrelate? A hundred percent. But it's more, what's really changed for me since the election as a journalist is, you know, my understanding I, before uh, the election was really that, you know, I, I, as I mentioned, I sp have spent until this project, most of my work has not been in the United States. And so I would write about, you know, a Syrian refugee family that was stuck in, you know, different continents, because I knew that by writing about that family, I would bring some pressure on the U.S. immigration system. You know, the State Department would respond. They'd have to unify the family. It might help give the Obama administration some cover under which to meet quotas for refugees. I mean, that was the idea, right, behind the work. Okay. But I took for uh, granted the issue of audience, that the people reading it would feel as I did. And I think what I've learned is just how little our coastal readers know, you know, and how yes. much we assume by virtue of economic privilege that we know better than others do about the terms of their own lives. Yeah. And so to sit down with farmers who can tell you the history of the shale beneath their feet, the coal, when these things were sold off, what the sophisticated understanding is, how resource extraction is a give and take, how rural Americans have paid for the energy appetites for right. urban Americans right. for a century, that is humbling in a whole 
different way. You've right? written about uh, Veronica Koptis, I think, uh, mm -hmm. who is a rural Pennsylvanian. She carries a Russian pistol. Um, she's very much a make America great again country. And she's thinking about Appalachia after coal. Yeah. So Ronnie Koptis, who I spoke to this morning, um, she is definitely talking about how do you what do you do in a region after coal? And there's how can I say this? There are ideas that look like a great idea to us from a distance about tech that don't really play out as well on the ground as they might. So the idea that a coal miner is going to build windmills and have a... That's not universally true. Yeah. Uh, there are, there's coding going there's on. There's coding. Yep, yep, yep. There are definitely small-scale solutions. One of my friends and I have both worked on this issue of Amazon warehouses, right? And, and in, in Pennsylvania, one of these guys really want Amazon processing centers. And of course, those are going to be out of use in five years. They'll all be automated. Right. And my assumption at a distance would be like, oh, southwestern Pennsylvania doesn't understand how quickly automation is coming to Amazon. No, no. They say, who are you to take jobs for five years from us? Yeah. At least it's five years. Yeah. And this is true when I written about uh, Ronnie. I've spent a lot of time with coal miners, too. Young miners who are making, you know, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year in places where the median income is forty thousand yeah. dollars. Their understanding is that coal is going to go away for sure. The reserve are such, they'll maybe work for 10 more years. But they voted for Trump because four more years means sending their kids to private school for four years. It means paying off their house and it means paying off their car. They're not looking toward a future. For them, this political divide isn't intractable in ideology. It's very real. It's very much a day-to-day -day economic reality. Harley Hochschild, you also write about the fossil fuel executives and workers having different attitudes toward climate change. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, you know, in the back of my head, I've, uh, and probably it's the same uh, for you, Eliza, of how could we get a conversation going uh, left and right on climate change? And... Actually, my son, David, yes, uh, who is a member of the California Energy Commission in charge of renewables and who is a big uh, advocate for uh, getting uh, California to 100% reliance on renewables, he came with me to visit Mike last year, and we went fishing, and we had a, a conversation. And I said, look, I'm just going to hold the tape recorder here. Can you guys come to some agreement on uh, how to get a clean uh, energy, a uh, clean environment? I know you both value it, but how do we get there? What's the role of government in it? And uh, that, uh, so they they agreed that renewables are a great thing. And Mike had a different vocabulary for it. Yes, private enterprise. You know, you start your own business. You're self-sufficient in energy. And um, why isn't that a great thing? Um, and there actually is an organization called the Green Tea Movement, which is Tea Parties for Green. So he was, uh, was not alone, Mike, in that attitude. When it came to climate change, and David was saying, well, you know, you could have solar on, on the roof of your house right here um, in the new, new house he lives in. He had to move out of Biocorn, so this one's on Lake Verrett. And he uh, said, yes, uh, it'd be a good thing, and it would even help with climate change. And Mike said, oh, no, 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 <laughs> no, not climate change. And in my mind, I've been continuing that conversation. Mike loved the military, and 
he said, well, you know, I would give my life for my country. I was in the military, I'm proud of it. Well, the military has been a leader in renewable energy, and in, uh, they're worried about rising tides. That's, that's a security issue. And actually, the Navy has a higher goal than the state of California. They want to get 50% reliant on renewables by 2020, and California is 25. So actually, that would be a way to begin a conversation, left and right. Look, um, you're for the military. It's being a leader in the very thing you, you're suspicious of. Also, I would add that that many of the CEOs for the big companies, uh, Philips 66, Shell, they believe in climate change. If you look at uh, their websites, they'll say, yeah, the science is there, and uh, it's a problem, we're worried. But the people that work for those companies don't. So that would be another way of starting with the figures that people on the right revere and saying, well, look, some of them agree that climate is real and it's based on science. I'm not sure how much the Navy says about that, but we do know <laughs> that they're worried about rising tides. There's a whole school that you can talk, solve climate change without using the word and talk yeah, about right. yeah. technology and Economics. food and sex yeah. and fun and all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Just don't use that, that word. But Arlie, you also have the idea of um, you know, exchange programs. Rather than college students going to France, they should go to Louisiana and, right. and learn. And, and we don't have those shuffling mechanisms that right. we use to have. Exactly. We used to have uh, a robust labor union movement that got people of different regions together and uh, uh, races. And we used to have, you know, a compulsory draft that put people together. Now we need a new one that mixes and matches us across region and class. Because if you look at left and right, they have become region class votes. So how do we do that? I think in high school would be a wonderful time uh, for the south to go north, the north to go south, coast to go inland, inland to go coast for three weeks, work on a project together. And before you do, take, take a class in civics and take another class in mediation. How do you, how do you listen to another? How do you respect both respect and disagree with a person. Get them trained to do that. Get each other's deep stories. And maybe we could re-knit this country together. I think that's a terrific idea. And, and as a journalist, I think we have to do better at, at being careful with our work to look at who is actually in places. I mean, you know, we look at Appalachia, 700,000 square miles, 25 million people, and we know what our stereotypes are, and we feed them. You know, reporters go out for a day to Trump country. I think Trump country is a dangerous stupid moniker we shouldn't use anymore. It just allows us to write off wide swaths of America. I was in Charleston, West Virginia a couple of days ago with some young trans activists and and resistance activists. They were doing different work. And they they were just so eager. What we think of who is in places, yes, an exchange, and also media do a better job at not going out and looking for your stereotypes because right. 
you know, they don't want to be, they're like, we are as diverse and as boring and as screwed up as any <laughs> other area of America. But don't blame Trump on us. Blame yep. Trump on the Philadelphia suburbs. You yeah. brought us Trump, yeah. you, you know? So I just think we have to do a better job. And, and that's a lot of economics. I mean, it's one thing to spend four hours in Taylor Bookshop, but you got to spend four days. You got to spend four years. And yeah. That's a harder ask. And one of the things I think is the themes uh, in both of your books is how people can smell that condescension that, you know, peel back of these layers of politics, economics, is that they know that the coastal elites look down on them and they resent it and they That's can right. smell it. That's right. They know That's that right. the coastal elites have benefited from their poverty. And their, like, ener and their energy. And, and their, their energy. energy. So screw, yeah. like, screw what somebody thinks of them. Like, what, what have they actually taken from them? And I think that that for me, you know, one of the things I, I've been thinking about bringing young people, young immigrants uh, back to communities in Appalachia, and I was working with some kids to do this, and the Appalachian kids said, you can't do that yet with people who are so, you could definitely do an exchange mm -hmm. program working mm -hmm. on a project mm -hmm. together, but don't bring us people who are really very different because we are wounded, and first you need to come to listen to us, and I think that degree of wound is really alien to us. And I also want to be very careful about talking about they in a general way, because yep. that's the problem. Mm -hmm. um, but individual stories told carefully with the diversity and eye toward diversity that we know is out there is part of what, what I as a journalist have to be doing. Isaac Griswold, a lot of the story you chronicle happens under the Obama administration. Mm. So what's your take uh, looking back at the Obama administration, how, you know, U.S. went from an importer to an exporter during that administration. Mm -hmm. So what's your assessment of how that that government did? That the concept of bridge fuel that was the cornerstone of Obama's policy was a farce. Unfortunately, I think it was incredibly short-sighted. We didn't need that bridge. That was a bridge to nowhere. I mean, renewables, you know, we were talking a little bit before, the most craven energy investors who are just don't care about the environment, who are just looking to make money, will tell you that growth in the market is in renewables. Part, that has lots of reasons. We've reached what's called peak grid, which I'm not going to get into. I'm sure mm -hmm. that's something you have discussed here before. So growth is off grid. It's in renewables as well as the fact that these things are easier to build and much cheaper than anybody thought. Yeah. So the idea, so we don't need natural gas as a bridge fuel. We are ready for renewables. And I think that was unfortunately, I don't know the genesis of that in the Obama administration. Certainly the idea of energy independence and national security are valuable goals and important, right? Um, and so are jobs in the Rust Belt, all of these ideas. But I have to think that industry got into Obama's ear in an unfortunate way, and, and he believed um, metrics that turned out to be short-sighted. Well, there's also the electoral map that every president pays attention to, and there's a lot of red states that are very important to get reelected, and those states wanted to have some kind of extraction. He was trying to, you know, the Jerry Brown thing, you paddle to the right, you paddle to the left, and you... But it's not so much the states that wanted the extraction, it's the industry that wanted the extraction. And when you look at what drives fracking, and you're going to have uh, Bethany McLean, who is another hero here, just wrote an amazing book called Saudi America, Wall Street, her question is, would fracking exist without Wall Street? And the answer she reaches is no, because 
actually fracking isn't turning a profit. What is what comes out of fracking? The money is basically investment money. She, she'll tell you much better than I can summarize her amazing work. But again, talking systemically, talking about our responsibility in New York City to those who live in Pennsylvania, the money is coming from Wall Street. So mm. th the reality Which comes from the pension plans of people sitting yeah. in this exactly. room listening to this podcast. Exactly. So what, when I asked Bethany, is this a Ponzi scheme? She said it's an unintentional Ponzi scheme, as most Ponzi schemes are, which, again, she, she's amazing. Listen to her herself. But this, we have culpability here. It's not just distant Texas execs or red state people voting for energy. No, it's Wall Street. And Wall Street is 401k plans and retirement Exactly. Once plans. again, this is pension yeah. funds that are looking for a return and are getting, and private equity, but pension funds in particular, that are getting deeper and deeper into this idea of energy that in a, in a way they don't need to be. So this suggests another form of activism. You know, it, look at these pension plans. And if you have a piece of one, you know, you can uh, get together with the others to... Uh, you know, get a voice and say, no, don't invest in that. And that is happening, the divestment movement on, on college campuses. You know, there's a divest invest. Divest, and there's yes. A lot of money is moving toward, you know, uh, away from fossil fuels because of stranded assets, all sorts of reasons. Uh, but Arlie Hochschild, you talk about how some of the dirtiest states are the reddest states. And, you know, tell us that correlation. So yes, actually, um, you know, uh, it's a part of a, a whole uh, red state paradox, actually. How come across the country, the red states are the states that have the most poverty, you know, most disrupted families, uh, the lowest life expectancy? As part of that, the worst pollution. Plus, they are also the states that don't believe in government solutions. So that seemed like a paradox. At the heart of it is this question of why it would be that... The, the states that are the most polluted are also the states with the most voters who don't believe in regulating polluters. That's kind of the heart of this, uh, of this paradox. And I, actually, for strangers in their own land, I did a special analysis putting together two things. There's something, the EPA has a tox map, and it has um, a measure R-S-E-I, it's called, that looks at the distribution of the um, amount of, of the volume of polluting materials, the toxicity of them, and the uh, populations that are exposed to this. That's a measure the EPA has, and I hope that with these cuts, that kind of knowledge doesn't go away. I related that to... A, uh, it's called a general social survey with a bunch of attitudes nationwide on the environment. And lo and behold, the closer you are to a zip code that has a high rate of uh, exposure to uh, toxic waste, the more likely you are to be a Republican, the more likely you are to agree with uh, such a statement as uh, the government is already doing enough to uh, preserve the environment. So, <laughs> you know, if we were talking before uh, this that in 1988, the environment didn't used to be a partisan issue. You had just as many Republicans as Democrats worried about it. Now we're doing the splits. And so now is the time for us to get together, 
with the skeptics and sit down and see if we can't find common ground. You say skeptics, that implies sort of conversion. I want to talk a little bit, the idea that people need to be converted to the way we see it. If yeah. those people would just think like me, mm. everything would be fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's not finding common ground. It's just like, I want no. to persuade you. I want to convince you. Isn't that what a lot you know, of what our political dialogue is right in, now? In writing Strangers, I met an extraordinary person. His name was General Russell Honore. And he uh, was the rescuer uh, in 2005 of the victims of Katrina. And he now has become uh, an ardent environmentalist. He's leading the environmental movement and the Green Army that Mike Schaff is part of. And I watched how he talked to non-environmentalists. And he, he did it this way, not by arrogantly kind of uh, disregarding the values and symbols of the people he's talking to, but by acknowledging them and doing what I would call a symbol stretch. I'll give you an example. He was talking to a group of Lake Charles uh, businessmen whose mantra was freedom, freedom. Uh, they didn't want anything to do with environmental regulation. So freedom to invest your money, freedom to make a lot of money, freedom from onerous regulations, freedom. And so he's talking to them. They don't like environmentalists, don't even like the word. And he says this, I woke up this morning and I looked out at Lake Charles. I saw a man in a boat and that man had his fishing line out. But that man is not free to lift up an uncontaminated fish. I thought, you genius. <laughs> oh, I followed him around for the next day. You know, just how does how do we do that? We need to do that with patriotism, not say, oh, you're silly to be patriotic. No, of course not. We're patriotic, too. But what does patriotism mean? Doesn't it mean a free press? Doesn't it mean an independent judiciary? Doesn't it mean democracy? I mean, you start with the symbol and you you apply it more broadly. I think that's brilliant. I also think, you know, that one of the ways to do this is through a conversation about rights. In the book, the these two heroic husband and wife lawyers who are no environmentalists. I mean, Kendra and John Smith. Kendra is a corporate defense attorney for uh, railroads. She mostly deals with asbestos cases. And they take a ca case that defends Stacy and others um, for the, for against co the companies and against the Pennsylvania, against the government itself, um, all the way up to the state Supreme Court. And they're trying, they, what their argument is, they know they're going to face a conservative Republican bench at the state Supreme Court level. And they know that, that the argument that's going to work is what are our God-given rights, right? These are our inalienable rights. And in Pennsylvania, one of the rights in the Constitution is the right to clean air and pure water. And that's been on the books since the 70s, but it's largely been instrumental. I mean, it's largely been decorative. It hasn't had any teeth. And because of the Smith's case and their apt argument about our, our right to clean air and pure water, a conservative chief justice of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court found in their favor. Um, and it, that's the kind of thinking. These are just terms to change, you know? Um, there was something else that was so important about George Lakoff that. is a Ber Berkeley linguist who also says that purity is a key to finding common ground using that, that right 
that conservative frame. Purity so, is so a, as Mike said, is the idea of conservation. Prudent use of resources for the next generation is a much better thing than liberal. Also, oh, I wanted to say this. Here's something you might not think about. For people who are living in rural places who may not, who hold conservative values, for people who live in cities to come out to them and tell them about the environment, they're just going to flip you the bird. Because, because, oh, you are so divorced from the land. You care so much about the land that you live in New York City? What a joke. Yeah, that's yeah. their understanding. And yeah. just, I mean, another way to just flip the script and see that for a second, that's the understanding. I want to talk about faith uh, and, you know, the way that religion plays into this. Eliza Griswold, you know, you've written about this. What role does religion play in, in these attitudes? Religion provides us another excellent word and another excellent concept to use with people who feel differently, which is stewardship. You want to talk you want to talk to conservative evangelical Christians about climate change and the environment you talk about stewardship of the earth and there are plenty of people I mean the issue of the environment within the evangelical community is so profound that there's a schism within the we are seeing it within the religious right within traditionally what we would see as the religious right we are seeing deep divides over issues of the environment um, of issues of immigration, of issues of abortion. So there are plenty of people, and I would call them heroes. They are really trying to move away from the cultural inheritance of religion. And in this case, that would be associated with like the moral majority, right? This is new, right? 70s, 80s, uh, you know, Christian right. And return evangelicalism in particular to its roots in um, anti-slavery, its roots in Jesus's actions and Jesus's life. And there's plenty of language and shared experience there to change the terms of the conversation. I think religion has a real role to play here. It's actually something I'm just starting to work on. So I'm just starting to identify some of these figures. Um, But again, you want to be really careful that you're not just talking to people who are talking down to others. That was Eliza Griswold, New Yorker writer and author of Amity and Prosperity, One Family and the Fracturing of America. Greg Dalton's other guest on today's program was Arlie Hochschild, author of Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. And join us next time for another conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.